Well, hello and welcome to this week's Countryside Programme uh, here on Max Radio with Kiri Kona, myself, Simon Clark, and uh, it was great uh, to hear a bit of nostalgia on this week's programme, Kiri. It is important to remember the days gone by, and it was great to catch up with Roland Baker on his return home from Alaska, but growing up on a Manx farms, the change in the farmer now when he's come back it's quite colossal really and um so very very different and i suppose it's the same with the with the railways as well now isn't it yeah and it's strange to look back at it you know i mean my dad's twin brother he emigrated to australia and and as a manx person you think uh, all them years ago it must have been such a tough decision to do for somebody it really must have been to up sticks and go because there was no internet to organise travel and we're so reliant on all these schedules that we have nowadays. But they just followed the wind and away they went and, yeah, what an adventure it must have been. Yeah, and it was certainly an adventure for me uh, with railway enthusiast and volunteer Mike Buttle. Um, we went along the railway section, the closed one now, of course, in the late 60s, I think it was, when it shut down the steam train from the Foxdale area through Peel and all the way to Ramsey. And uh, it was such a nice walk with Mike along there at the railway station at Kurt Michael. We went to Glen Willen where the viaduct was. And, and of course, you're lucky in a way, Kerry. You still have the, the steam train running through your land, don't you? It's a lovely sight, especially at the springtime when that first train of the season comes through. You know that summer is on its way. And it's such a, a nice relief to see the back of winter. But what immaculate condition it is in and the upkeep of the railway tracks. It, it's just a shame that that one had to go, isn't mm. it, out west? Yeah, does it stop on your land for to give a lift? It it doesn't stop with <laughs> us, but Balasal is only two miles away. So. All right, let's hear it all that nostalgia here in this week's countryside. Manx Radio's Countryside is brought to you by NFU Mutual. Hello and welcome to this week's Countryside here on Manx Radio. I'm Simon Clark and I'm Kerry Kermode. This week I catch up with Roland Baker to talk about growing up on Manx farms before moving out to Alaska. And I talked to Mike Buttle, a railway enthusiast and volunteer, and had a walk with them along the old railway line at Kirkmichael, which was the scene of some nostalgic return in the last couple of weeks. Well, Kerry, the steam train heads past your land, I think, on its way from Douglas and Port Erin and the return journey, doesn't it? It does. It cuts through the bottom of our fields with the main home farm above the track and the and the lower small fields beside the ferry bridge there. It is always a delightful sight to see it go underneath the blackboards bridge with a big puff of smoke and a hoot before it gets to Bollywoods. Yeah. Do you have to um do you have to you know go go across the lines on any parts of the field? We do. We yeah. cross the track quite a number of spots, but we in the winter months when it doesn't run, we used to walk the sheep along it and it was always a handy shortcut with the traffic getting quite heavy but uh, we don't do so much of that now with the, the modern trailers and, and such like so but it was always a, a worry that the train might all of a sudden appear when we were little running along the track. Yeah well I went on a nostalgic walk with Mike Buttle a uh, railway enthusiast and volunteer uh, for the Isle of Man steam trains and the railways and the upkeeps of them and I had a walk with him along the section of the railway track at Kirk Michael there around the Glen Willen area and then at Kirk Michael station and uh, well, it's been the, the scene of something special over the last two weeks, I put to Mike. Firstly, Mike, uh, we're here at Kurt Michael Station, the fire station now, but uh, it's pretty nostalgic looking around, but it's been the hive of activity recently with uh, something special that went on. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, a uh, locomotive and uh, carriage were brought up here by a low loader and uh, put on display 
in front of the station building. So first time a, a steam train has been up here for 50 years. How about that? Really? And they had the track laid out and everything? Two or three panels of track, just enough for it to, to sit on. Uh, there was never a question of it being in steam. Um, it was purely a, a static display, although there was a smoke generator put in the firebox at one stage during the, uh, the proceedings, which was quite exciting. And how did this all come about? Something to commemorate um, the, fifth, the, the 50th year of the railway through here closing. In fact, the, the whole of the North Line and the Peel Line, they all shut down in 1968. Uh, Peel Line had opened in 1873, the line up to the north opened in 1879, and they ran continuously up until uh, the mid-1960s, then closed down for a year. Uh, reopened again under Lord Ailsa in 67, ran through till 68. He lost an absolute fortune on it. And so at the end of the 1968 season, he made the decision to uh, close, the, close the railway down. Yeah, I remember as a, as a nipper with my dad watching the motorbikes at Wren Cullen. And I remember them saying, wow, there's the steam train going past, which seemed to be surprised at them. I was probably five or six at the time. And that's probably the last time that I, it was ever seen on, on this route here. It would have been uh, round about that time, yeah. We'd, we'd use the train quite often. My grandfather had uh, relations up in Ramsey and we'd often be taken as a family up to see them. And uh, then for the 67 and 68 seasons, we had a, a like a seasonal pass. And so really that the whole of the railway system was our playground for those two summers and it was absolutely fantastic. But why, why, was the, why did this particular one close? I mean, this, I think, ran from Ramsey to, to St. John's or somewhere, did it? It did. Uh, it was opened by the Manx Northern Railway. Um, never really made them any money. Uh, they had the, the perfect storm of tragic events happen to them. They tied themselves to a disastrous lease with the Foxdale Railway, uh, which was very profitable for the, for the Foxdale Company, but disastrous for the Northern. Uh, Dumbbell's bank crashed, and of course the opening of the electric railway to Ramsey took away all their passengers. So it never really made any money. Perhaps in the first couple of years it scraped through, but after that it, it just, just lost money as it ran. Why weren't people using the, the routes along here to Peel and say? There wasn't a population, Simon, at that mm. time. I mean, Kirkmichael and Balaf were only very little villages then, if you remember. Uh, it's only in recent years since all the development has gone on that they've really expanded. Um, so there, there wasn't, I don't think there was really enough people here in the first place to justify building it. But, the, you know, the Victorians, not, not a little detail like that wouldn't put them off. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, the dismantling of, um, for yourself who has been involved in it all your life, I mean, I suppose you remember the tracks getting taken up and the, the water bowsers overhead and the stations, I suppose, being sold off. Yeah, the tracks were all lifted in the mid-1970s. We had a, a walk along them, I think, in 1974, while the tracks and the sleepers rolled down. I think we walked most of the northern line, um, but it was all taken up and sold for scrap. Mm. But it must have been pretty sad times, Mike, uh, for yourself, um, seeing it and, and being involved with your, your dad and granddad for many years and, and you being here to see it getting taken apart, really. Yeah, nothing worse than seeing a, a railway being dismantled, uh, and especially the way it was it was carried about. There was no finesse about it. They just dragged the stuff off with tractors and, you know, cut it up with uh, with oxy cutters. Um, it, it wasn't a, a sight you'd want to stand and watch for any length of time at all. Well, we're looking at this building now that's run by the Kurt Michael Fire Brigade, and it's pretty special and absolutely in pristine condition. They look after it well, don't they? Uh, the building itself is built out, uh, Manx building, built out of uh, local peel red sandstone and uh, a very distinctive twin gabled design which was uh, typical of stations on the northern line. 
Um, the one of the stations at St. Germans and up at Balaf and uh, Solby were all built to exactly the same design as this. And uh, the, the fire brigade do do a fantastic job looking after it. If you go inside, uh, the inside of it is almost exactly the same as it was the day it sold its last ticket to a passenger for the train. Wow, it's incredible. I mean, this this design, was, it, was this uh, sort of unique all over the UK, Mike? No, no, this was a special design just for the Isle of Man. Really? Yeah, yeah. And they're still standing today. And a lot of them, I suppose, are, are in private um, ownership now. And uh, are many kept to, to this sort of look? The, um, the, station, the old station up at Solby Bridge is a beautiful um, restoration job um, to a, a private dwelling. St Germans as well is a private dwelling. Uh, Balaf, the building similar to the one here at Kirk Michael at Balaf, was, was demolished in the 70s, unfortunately. Um, so all that's left up Balaf is the goods shed and uh, the little station at Peel Road was only wooden anyway, so that was burnt down when the, when the railway closed. And there's another stone building up at Lazare, um, but where Ramsey Station was uh, is the site of Ramsey Bakery now. Right, and th- this route, I suppose, uh, looking down the line now, um, you know, I ride it on the on the push bike sometimes as well, and it has got that beautiful country feel to it. And it it's so sad to to think that it's not there. I mean, could it reopen? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the dreamer in me says yes, please. The realist in me says no chance. Right. The there's reasons? Two, there's just too many problems to encounter. Uh, the two big viaducts are long gone, of course. Uh, it costs uh, long, long. Is that hundred... the Glen Willen there? Glen, Glen Willen and Glen Moore, two, right. two big viaducts going across there. They've, they've gone. It cost a fortune to replace, to replace those. But that would just be the start of your troubles, really, because the whole of the line uh, in, around the Gobbledegan area is just slipping into the sea. Uh, since we've started doing our railway walks, we've been doing it for about 10 years now. And we've seen the, the, the track bed slip by a good 12 foot in that time. So it's, it's all on its way down towards the sea. No generous landowners that would uh, give you a strip to, to sort of move it inland a bit? Well, if you put a million pound a mile to replace it, Simon, I'm sure we could come to some sort of arrangement. A million pound a mile, is that what they reckon it would cost? Uh, apparently so, apparently mm. so. Wow, a million pound a mile. But but there's a head start here, Mike, when we look <laughs> across Station Road there. Yeah, there's a couple of lengths ready to ready, ready for us just to join on to. Handy, eh? Yeah, they're the original ones. They are, yes. The ones going across the road, uh, part of the original level crossing. Uh, there were two lines went across the road and the other side of the, the gate, the gate that's there is a, is a replica. It's not an original gate. But, but the other side of that was the water tank for the locos where they'd stop and uh, refuel their water tanks after the uh, the journey up from uh, St. John's. Because it was all, all the way uphill from St John's here, so there'd be a good chunk of water taken out by the time they got up to Kirk Michael, so it was a, a good opportunity to fill the tanks up. And uh, then going on a bit further down, um, we'll go out towards Glen Willen and have a look. Well, we've moved along Mike Buttle to the Glen Willen here, uh, where the, the viaduct used to go over. The pillars are still standing though. Yeah, just, just waiting for the new Similar bridge. stone. Yeah, yeah, just waiting for the new bridge to be put on top of them, <laughs> eh? <laughs> But there must have been a spectacular view over the of the top of here when it was in full flight with holiday makers. Absolutely. This was one of the holiday hotspots uh, back in the day, of course. Uh, the Glen was owned and operated by the railway company, who always had a keen eye to make extra money from their passengers whenever, whenever they could. So they operated Glen Willen as a pleasure park. So as we look over the Glen here, uh, now if you can imagine seeing the, the cafe and the bowling green, tennis courts, boating lake, uh, playground for for children and that then all all kept immaculately, and uh, now of course it's uh, one of the the island's biggest uh, camping areas. 
I mean, you know, when you're inside the, the, the where the railway embankments either side of here are and looking over the, the viaduct here to the other side, it it just make you feel like, wow, wouldn't it be nice if this was back in, in work and action? Because certainly the, the one that leaves Douglas, heads down through Castellan Santon, stops at Port Erin and comes back, it, it seems to have gained popularity in recent years, Mike, is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say, yeah. Passenger figures have been up for the past four or five years and they keep on the increase. And innovations like the like the dining train have brought people onto the railways that wouldn't have normally travelled on them. So that's been, a, that's been a great thing. Yeah, and how original are them coaches, carriages and, and engines that are still running? Uh, this is the, the great thing about the Isle of Man Steam Railway, that everything that runs on it was built specially for it. There's nothing being uh, imported from anywhere else. You get quite a few of the heritage railways across the water, the narrow gauge ones in Wales or whatever, and they've brought uh, locomotives and stock in from wherever they, they could get them, basically. But here on the Isle of Man, everything that runs here was built to run here. Are they, are they say, a special size? They are. The, the, the railway runs on a, a three-foot gauge, the steam railway, same as the uh, Manx Electric between Douglas and, and Ramsey. So it's, it's quite an unusual gauge. You, you'd have to go, uh, there were a number of three-foot gauge lines over in, in Ireland, uh, but then after that you'd have to go out to uh, South Africa and uh, Australia to find three-foot. Really? Yeah. I mean, you take people uh, for walks and, and talks along this, and I mean, just just talking to you now, Mike. You just sort of waiting for a train to go past. It puts that, <laughs> it conjures that in your mind, though. Yeah, we, we we like to think so. We like to try and bring the atmosphere of the old railways when we when we take people on the walks. We we must do about half a dozen walks a year, um, and this is this is my favourite one. The this this walk between uh, Kirk Michael and St John's. Uh, because there's such a lot to talk about. I mean, he had seven stations or stops along the way, so there's plenty to talk about. Uh, the, the countryside you pass through is absolutely fantastic. The views are incredible. And this is the difference between the, the Ramsey line and the, the Peel line. Uh, the Peel line is now the Heritage Trail, and really 50 years of growth either side of the path there has taken away any view that there ever was. Um, so this, this is really great to, to, to take people in. And uh, when we take the walks, we have either a, a, a tablet with us or um, a couple of folders. So when we get to spots along where we've got a picture of how things were in the old days, we can stop and show them the picture and let them uh, imagine them being back in the scene. Well there, Mike Buttle with some great memories and uh, great knowledge of the steam trains that uh, were running from the Foxdale area through Peel and uh, St German all the way to Ramsey through the Kirk Michael and Balaf and there with him at the, the wonderful uh, station that's still at Kirk Michael that they use for the, uh, the fire uh, services there now. It is lovely. It must have been great in the days before the cars. You know, what a great method of transport to get grain and crops and different things from one end of the island to the other. But uh, now it's only used as... Mountain bikers and uh, uh, the railway... uh, Of course, the water services and bits and pieces are under it now. So I suppose it makes it a little bit more difficult. million pound a mile to put it back. There you go. You're listening to Countryside here on Manx Radio with Kiri Kermode and myself, Simon Clark. And uh, you've been out and about getting some nostalgic memories, Kiri. That's right. Uh, Roland Baker grew up on the Manx farms in the south of the island. And some of the farms that I farm today, he has lots of memories on too. But he packed his bags and took off to Alaska and spent his last 50-odd years there before returning back to the island, where I just caught up with him recently after the Royal Manx show. 
Roland Baker, things have changed over the years, but growing up on the Manx farms here in the Isle of Man as a young fella, it must have been great days. It was, yeah. I really enjoyed growing up on a Manx farm. And I learned one thing that a lot of people need to learn how to do is called work. Just <laughs> plain work. There are no excuses. But yeah, I grew up on a Manx farm and I'm very, very happy I did. Absolutely. Roland, your family weren't directly involved with agriculture. You weren't born into a farming family, but your mum had a great part to play in the stocking of livestock on the calf of man. Only thing I can say is that my mother told me as a young lady, and I think she was born in 1902, uh, she used to help at low tide swim cattle uh, uh, to the to the actual calf. Then she'd stay for a few days in that old farmhouse there. I mean, that's all she told me, but uh, my mother wasn't much of a, of a story fib teller. So, yeah. <laughs> Your mother was, was a career from... Glen May. Was she? Yeah. Career from Glen May? Yeah. Her cousin was a Manx farmer's wife, and that's how I got involved in it. It was very easily, actually. So that would have been Balaquagan in, in Malou? Balaquagan Farm, yes, at the Blackboards. Some of our listeners might even remember some of the people you used to work for, Roland, on the farms back as a young lad. I worked for Quirks on Balaquagan Farm, and Reggie Quirk was a great friend of this young lady's granddad, so we often went up there to do a little bit. I went up to use to go help with the mill when it came, and that was the thrashing. And I was friends out at uh, Balaglani uh, with the uh, Corrins and around a few of the... You would get sent to other farms to go help for a while. Some of the names now, uh, my memory's not brilliant, so <laughs> it faded away. But they uh, were good days though, Roland. They were absolutely great days. And I wouldn't trade them for anything. I, you know, I worked hard and I played hard. And you worked there for a good number of years before leaving school? I worked there as a, as a young kid, just growing up. With, I had a cousin called Harry and a cousin called John. And I worked on the farm with, with them. And then leaving school, I stayed on the farm until I was 24 years old. And then I got an opportunity to go out and cut wheat in, in Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota, North Dakota. I went out with a guy called Lyle, who came over as an exchange student to uh, P.M. Kringles at the Friary in uh, Rebella Beg. And sort of been out there ever since. I migrated then to Montana and then migrated finally to Alaska, where I have lived for years now. But I became a commercial fisherman rather than a farmer. But you must have been quite ambitious to, to up and leave the Isle of Man. We didn't have the internet to make schedules and, and programmes of travel. You know, you must have been quite a tough character. Well, I didn't like sitting down. <laughs> no, there was always something to do. There was something always over the horizon. And I've been looking over the horizon ever since I was a kid. So I've been looking over the horizon out in Alaska. I see Russia. But the years in Montana doing those harvests, you know, acres and acres of wheat. Acres and acres of wheat. The guy I worked for had 7,000 acres of wheat. 
and he had seven combines, all John Deere's, all big ones, and seven big Ford trucks. So we just actually, when we went combine harvesting, they called themselves custom harvesters. Started in Texas and just cut your way north until we got to his fields, which we then harvested them. And then we spent most of the winter taking them into the machine shop and repairing what all damage was and getting them all ready for the next year. And how did that harvest compare to the harvest you would have experienced on the Isle of Man as a young boy? Well, it's multiplied, you know, like about a thousandfold. If you got seven combines in the same field all coming up, as you might say, in the tandem, which is the wrong number, but, but just the same, you're cutting a lot of wheat. And we cut with all with 16-foot headers. Uh, any bigger was a bit cumbersome because as you tipped a bit, the corner of the header would then dig into the soil. So 16-foot was plenty. But you could take your header off and put it on a trailer and load the actual combine onto a truck. I could do it in about 45 minutes. Jeez. Or vice versa, the other way. And that was a good number of years ago now, Roland. So the technology out there will have increased oh. and expanded somewhat even since then. Absolutely. I mean, I have not been around the combine harvester now for years. Uh, like I said, I became a commercial fisherman and a commercial fishing boat repairman. So you were always into the mechanics of, of everything that you've ever done. Repairing these fishing boats, Alaska is one of the main places in the world for f sea fish. How was it? Many repairs? Some of you might have seen a program on your TV called The Deadliest Catch. It's about catching king crab out in the Bering Sea. You're not running along the shore. You're way out at sea from where we fished to the town of Dutch Harbor when we got done fishing at 12 knots was, was 26 to 30 hours away. So we were way out at sea. So, but anyway, Kodiak itself has got 700 fishing vessels. Kodiak, the town of, provides, it's the second largest fishing port in the United States only superseded by Dutch Harbor, which is actually 825 miles from Kodiak, further out west. So when the fishing boats break down, which is pretty easy, uh, it's easy to get done, and uh, actually life and limbs as well. Uh, it was my job to keep them um, repaired, and I still do. And that, that will keep you busy, because we watch on the TV, like you say, them seas are wild. Yeah, uh, there's no comparison to a wild sea if you're trying to work in it. And there was no ever such thing as a 12-hour day or a 24-hour day. Most of the days were 30 hours. Yeah, there would be no rest and you would be physically tired. You're so physically wore out, you start seeing double. You're literally, you're, all you want to do is lay down and you can't. You have to keep going. And how many tons of, of crab and fish will, will these areas produce in here? Are they big, big suppliers of, of the world's demand? I can't recall how many tons, but the average fishing boat going back to town would have um, 30,000 pounds of fish on board, see? Big business. Yeah, it is big business, yes. Yeah. It's huge business. But 
I have to say for the state of Alaska, it is very, very well controlled and maintained. They literally count fish on a daily basis of how many go through a catch station and how many are actually harvested at the recanneries. And they add those two numbers together and you know how many fish were taken out of a certain area at a certain time. It's all recorded. And if there are not enough fish to get the escapement up the river to produce more fish again, then the season is stopped for a few days until they have got their quota again. So it is really, really well regulated. The stocks are well looked after. Absolutely. It is very, very well regulated, 100%. And you get back to the Isle of Man on an annual basis, Roland. Do you see things changing here over the years? I know you get back to the friary and Bolaquagan as well. Do you see the landscape and the people changing much? Yes, <laughs> and I'm an old man. I would have to say they're changing too much. <laughs> uh, you've got too much industry here now. It's a farming community, uh, and you're selling farm fields off every day to put a house on it, and that's wrong. Oh, but it's nice to catch up with your old friends. So, you know, Noel Kringle at the Friary, John Masson at Bola Cricket as well. Yeah, I've always enjoyed all my old friends and... I like to say that anybody wants to come out to Alaska, you just find Kiri and she knows how to find me. <laughs> when you get there, it will cost you nothing. <laughs> but in Alaska, Roland, you see some of the harshest of winters, some of the wildest of animals. We see, yeah, we see some harsh winters. We get some incredible storms. Also, the island I live on, which is Kodiak Island, is an island of just pure mountains. It's a hundred and some miles long and 60 miles wide approximately. And it's all just mountains. And there's only, only uh, 14,000 people live on the whole island. So we have a lot of snow in, in the winter, have a lot of ice to drive on, on the roads. And sometimes the wind blows for days that the airport's never open. So <laughs> you've got to sort of feed a few extra mouths once in a while. Good God. But you were telling me earlier, Roland, that the brown bears, it's just another species along the roadside. It's no big deal for you. No, we have, according to our fish and game department, they will tell us we've got a brown bear, which is a big bear. He probably goes, uh, a good male will go 1,200 pounds. Uh, some of them up to 1,500 pounds. We have a bear for every square mile. Now, they do hibernate in the winter, but in the summertime, you see quite a few. And if you want to go fishing, which I do a lot with a fly rod, uh, you go down to the particular stretch of river you like, and there's a bear or, uh, or already. I've had one bear on the end of my fishing rod. Oh, which, my word. Uh, but anyway. Scary times? Uh, no, no, I'm not frightened of them. I am very respectful of them. I, I, yanked, I yanked the fly out of that fish's mouth. The fly flew past my face at like Mach 7. And the bear picked up the fish and walked over to my left and sat down and ate it. And I sort of eased away to my pickup. <laughs> but I've seen a lot of bears, yeah. It's incredible. So you've moved from one island to another. They're vastly different. Would you ever consider living back here? I have considered this many times and I've tried it. 
But uh, you've got to chase a few people away. It's a bit too crowded for me. <laughs> that was Roland Baker chatting about days as a young fella on the Manx farms and his return home from Alaska. Yeah, so, but uh, times were tough and uh, a, a lot of laughs had and that camaraderie that was with people. But gosh, the work uh, they had to do manually. Yeah. Oh, those days of humping the big sacks of corn around and doing everything by hand. You don't realise how mechanised it is now. But to pack bags and go off out to America to a whole new home, a different type of territory where the freezing temperatures that you hear Roland talk about... uh, yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted. No, no, it wouldn't do your uh, you know, fear of the cold any good, Kiri. Oh, it? I don't like the cold at no, all. I don't. <laughs> all right, we'll leave it there for this week's Countryside. Kiri and myself will be back next week with more. So until then, from me, Simon Clark. And me, Kiri Kermit. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there we are. It was uh, lovely having a walk with Mike along the, the railway lines there at uh, the west and that still that station at Kirk Michael in pristine condition. And the, the unique shape of the two um, little gables that they had on them, the two peaks as well. They were really beautiful buildings, the railway buildings, seemingly. Mm. And you, you see ruins of them still around, maybe turned into a house or two or whatever on the track out that side. But you still see that railway look about them, don't you? But it was such an important thing for island life, wasn't it? For There was very few transporters then, so it was essential to business. Yeah, and uh, just the sad demise of it in the late 60s as well, where really it wasn't cost-effective people were using different means of travelling and I suppose a lot of them worked in the country so uh, I suppose they took a tractor to where they were going backwards and forwards This is it and Roland Baker on his return home from Alaska said that very thing of how busy it is here now with the cars and lorries on the road compared to when he was a young boy growing up on the Manx farms and and he chats about how times were very very different then to to what they are now Yes, there we go that was really nice to hear uh, that nostalgic look back Alright, we'll leave it there for this week's country and we're back next week with more. So from me, Simon Clark. And me, Kerry Kermit. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye.